As you're settling in, let's just pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you this morning again that we can come to the word of God, Lord, just the privilege it is to worship you, but then also, Lord, to almost take this position of sitting at your feet and uh, listening and wanting to be taught of you. So, Lord, we just uh, we come we come with that heart and that mind today, asking Lord that you would that you would speak to us, that you would give us ears that hear, that you'd help us to see the wonderful things that are in your law. Lord, that your grace and your blessing would just be upon this time, that your Spirit would bring unction. I pray, and I ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Right on. Hey, I don't know if you guys got that music back there. Did it hit? Did it pause? <laughs> It was playing in the monitors here while I was praying, so <laughs> right on. I can't hear it now. You're good. Okay. Sweet. Hey, so we're going to pick it up this morning. We're in Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 30. Just going to end up with the last little section of this chapter. And uh, last week, as we came to chapter 9, what we saw is we were coming to this new section in the book of Romans. It's a really interesting section. A lot of people say that this is at the heart of where Paul is trying to get to in this conversation with the Roman church because of the Jewish Gentile problem that was going on, some of the theological issues that had crept in to the Roman church, the replacement theology, the, the challenge between Jews and Gentiles, and all sorts of this stuff. And so Paul is addressing that, and he begins to talk about Israel. And we look last week, first he talks about the past of Israel. Now as we come start to transition into chapter 10, he's going to talk to present Israel, about present Israel, and then future Israel in chapter 11. And so Paul has taken us through this, this great section of scripture that's so awesome, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. We, we read that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that there is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it just brings up, the, in just in reality, the topic of Israel, God's Old Testament covenant people and their relationship. And Paul says, so what? We look, we look at, when we say there's no separation in Christ Jesus, then we have to address the, the issue of Israel and say, well, what about God's Old Testament covenant people? And so we, we just walked through that last week, just the God's sovereign choice of, of Israel and how they were called to serve his purpose, to be a light to the nations and where their failure was and all of that. And now we come to um, Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 30. And we're going we're gonna to just see again uh, two things really about Israel. And they're this, their failure to achieve righteousness and their, their failure to receive God's revelation to them. And, and so let's pick it up. Let's read verse, uh, re verse 30 here, 30 to 32 of chapter 9. It says this. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, but that Israel who had pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Paul says. Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so here's Israel, Paul says, in the present, 
They are stumbling over the stumbling stone, stumbling in the present. See, the Jews, he says, sought righteousness, but they did not find it. And the Gentiles, who were not seeking righteousness, found it. They found it. And the reason, the reason is, is that Israel tried to be saved through their works, through their obedience to the law rather than by faith. They rejected the grace of God that was being extended to them in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And rather they said, we can produce our own righteousness by works of the law. And you know, it just makes me think this, just this question for you and I is, what kind of righteousness are we seeking? Are we uh, uh, seeking a righteousness based on what we can do and what we can achieve and how we can earn our way in? And the warning here is, is this, is that when you are striving in yourself for your own righteousness, is that you begin to stumble over Jesus. You'll trip up on Jesus. And so are we, are we seeking a righteousness based on works or are we seeking a righteousness that's based on grace through faith in Jesus Christ? And, and we know this as we just consider the Jewish Gentile thought that, that no one is saved on the basis of birth or behavior. Those, are, those who are saved are saved by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says this in verse 33. He says, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so he's telling us here that the house of Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone. And in a sense, really, they are responsible for their present spiritual condition as a nation. Israel stumbled over the cornerstone, over the rock, Jesus. It's very interesting. If you, if you look at probably the hardest people group in the world to evangelize, it's Jews. They say that when the Jewish nation was born again, that literally there were about two handfuls of Christians in the entire country. Today they say there's about 15,000 believers. It's like the gospel is beginning to get traction and move amongst God's chosen people, Israel. But, but, but here Paul says that they, they stumble over the rock, the cornerstone, and he says this, he, he puts the blame square where it should be. It's, it's upon them. Jesus is and was God's sovereign plan for, for mankind and for salvation, but this is the part of the gospel that's about human responsibility. We're in faith. We are to respond to a sovereign God. Respond to Jesus. And, and Israel failed to respond. Remember, we, I gave you a quote last week, one that I love of Spurgeon, when he was asked how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He said, I never try to reconcile friends. That's good. It's really good. I never try to reconcile friends. And in, and in Romans chapter 9, where we were last week, we really saw the, the sovereignty of God's choosing predestination work. But here we see in this chapter the responsibility of God's creation to respond to him and his choosing. And God is faithful and he's righteous and he's just and he's full of mercy and he's full of grace Grace, and, and you can trust him and you can depend on him to accomplish his purposes and to keep his plans. And I would say this about Jesus. I hope you've trusted Jesus 
with your life and for your salvation. And so as we begin to come to Romans 10, Paul begins to just explain this present condition of Israel and their rejection of the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whereas Romans 9 was, like I said, landing on this conversation about God's sovereignty and his election of Israel, here in this chapter we're going to see the human responsibility to the gospel. And so the, the, the end of Romans chapter 9 tells us that Israel stumbled over a stone. It's kind of a... I, this picture makes me... Have you ever watched those videos? Like they're just collaborations of people stumbling. Maybe on YouTube you go on there and, and the, uh, the, the good one is the treadmills. You ever watch the treadmill videos? And people go down hard. I have one of those stories. When I was 19, I was with my mom and we went to Costco and at Costco there, they used to have all this exercise equipment right by the tills. And so I thought, I'm going to hop on the treadmill and try this treadmill out. And I was wearing a pair of shorts and it was a summer day and I got on there and I got going and I thought, I wonder how fast this thing goes. Can't be that quick. And I dialed her all the way up and before I knew it, out came my feet and I landed on my knees on the treadmill and then it shot me off the treadmill and then when my knees hit the, the treadmill, I or hit the ground, I, I began to fall forward and I, all I could see was this belt going like this and I went down like this and I kind of touched my wrist, touched my wrist and touched my end of my chin and I got up and I was bleeding on both wrists, I was bleeding on my chin, I was bleeding on both knees and I felt like a total tool. <laughs> Stumbling. We all stumble at times. And you can enjoy hearing about my stumble. But when Paul says this, he says, I don't rejoice in Israel's stumble. You know, there's a stumbling that's not entertaining to watch. Not like a treadmill stumble. And he said, as I look at Israel, I'm not entertained by their present spiritual condition. In fact, my heart's broken as I see them stumbling. And that should be our heart for the Jewish people too. And so look at verse 1 of chapter 10. It says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You know, there was a time when Paul himself was amongst those who were staggering and stumbling over the person of Jesus. A time when he agreed with everyone who opposed all things Jesus and opposed all things gospel. A time when Paul considered Jesus a fake and a fraud and an adversary of the things of God until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I mean, it's where that saying comes from. He got knocked off his high horse. Knocked off his high horse and he discovered the true identity of Jesus. This Jesus whom he had persecuted, that, that Jesus was God's, chosen Messiah, his instrument to turn an upside down world right side up. And until Paul met Jesus, he didn't, he didn't feel his need for salvation. And the entire nation of Israel was, and I would say is, still the same in that hard attitude. Israel looked at at the Gentiles, and they said, look at those Gentiles. Those Gentiles need salvation. Those Gentiles need to know the God that we serve. 
but they themselves were blind to their own condition. Paul was blind to his own condition. You know that scales literally fell off his eyes. And he's going to talk about these scales further in this, this text next week as we get to it. But on the road to Damascus, Paul met the measuring stick of God's righteousness. Jesus. And the light blinded him and Boy, he couldn't eat or drink for days. And Acts chapter 9 tells us the story about this man, Saul, who was called Saul, a self-righteous Pharisee who was silenced in the light of Christ, in the presence of Jesus. When he met Jesus, Paul discovered for the first time in his life his own spiritual poverty. In Israel, when he, when he talks about Israel here, one of the things that we see about their present condition at the time of Paul, and I think really today too, is that they do not feel their need for salvation. And what I love about Paul's heart and his desire for the people of Israel is that he turned his heart and a desire into an action. He said, I pray for them. I desire that they would know Jesus, so I pray for them. And Paul let that, that heart that was beating for the salvation of his people give direction to his prayer life and he prayed for the salvation of Israel. You know, I'll tell you, we know this, but we need to be reminded. We need to pray for the people that our hearts are broken for. The people that God is breaking our hearts for, he is doing that to put them on our hearts that we would pray for their salvation. And so Paul says this in verse 2. He says, For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He says, My people, they're, they're zealous for God. And the reality is, is this, is we know this, that unfortunately enthusiastic, passionate zeal does not guarantee righteousness. And again, Paul's a great example of that. His zeal for the law when he was Saul his zeal for the traditions of his people and for the word of God led him to a place where he actually was in opposition to God and persecuting followers of Jesus. You know, I was thinking about it a, a number of years ago. Um, I had the knock, knock, knock on the door. And it was uh, a couple of Mormon missionaries that were in town. And so I sat down with them. I offered them coffee. I had to. I couldn't resist knowing that they don't. They don't drink coffee, by the way. So I knew that. I said, can I get you guys a coffee? And they said, no. And, uh, and then we sat down, and we just uh, started to yap. And uh, I, I said to them, I said, tell me the gospel. Like, if I just said to you, what must I do to be saved? What would you tell me? And they began to share wi with me the gospel. And I would tell you this, that it sounded very, very similar to the gospel that we preached until we got to the very end. Because when we got to the very end, they, they, they said this as they were wrapping up their gospel presentation. They said this, quote, Then you promise God to faithfully obey all of his laws for the rest of your life. That's just that tack on to the gospel. Then, and once you've done this, this, and this, and you're saved... Now you promise God that you're going to faithfully obey all of his laws to the rest of, for the rest of your life. And of course, my question was, well, how are you doing with that? And, you know, 
we know what the, the message is, is that, they th- that they think their good works and their religious deeds will save them. They've tacked on works to the message of Jesus. Believing that their faithfulness to God is what is the real, you know, uh, result what w- is what will really result in salvation. And the Jews believe the same thing, Paul said. They, they're trying to achieve a righteousness through works. And the reality is, is it's, it's that very belief that keeps a person, Jew or Gentile, from being saved. And so Paul says, devotion, sincerity, yeah, they've got it. They've got zeal. They've got zeal for doing good works, but none of that, sincerity, devotion, zeal, is going to save your soul. You know, zeal's good. But he says, not without knowledge. Ignorant of righteousness, ignorant of the righteousness of God and instead trying to establish their own. Look at verse 3. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The, the issue was submission to God. You know, ignorance is bliss. That's what they say, right? Ignorance is bliss. There was a time when, lots of years ago, Lisa and I are going to be married for 20 years this summer, and, and there was, you know, a timetable in our relationship when I thought things were just moving along just fine. You know, we were, we were dating, and we weren't engaged yet, and Lisa was not on the same timetable as me, and she was thinking to herself, what's with this guy? You know, like, get a, get a move on here. Let's close the deal. Quit dragging your, your heels. And I was just, you know, ignorantly unaware. And there is that for the people of, of Israel in this sense. The nation of Israel is, is ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. Ignorant of the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. And instead... It's tried to establish its own. But their ignorance wasn't because they had never been told, Paul's going to tell us. They were ignorant because they refused to learn. You know, you can be ignorant. You can be ignorant because you, you haven't had the opportunity to learn, or you can be ignorant because you're willingly ignorant and refusing to see what's right in front of you. Did Israel lack information about Jesus? No. Did Israel lack information when it came to anything in regards to the Messiah? I would say no. They had more than enough information from the Old Testament. They they could identify Jesus as the Messiah. The, The problem was their own disobedient and obstinate and self righteous hearts were resisting the truth of God. They refused to submit, Paul says. They refuse to submit to God. They, they love to look in the mirror and admire and love their own religion. That's the true heart of a Pharisee. Looking in the mirror and admiring your own religion. And in their good works and self-righteousness, they failed to realize the condition of their own hearts. They failed to realize that they were sinners that needed to trust Jesus for their salvation. You know, the Bible tells us that there's a day of judgment coming, right? 
There's a day of judgment coming, and on that day, it won't make a, a difference who you are, what class you are, what people groups you're from, what your culture is. Only one thing will count is Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus? So look with me at verse four. It says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, the beautiful thing about a relationship with Jesus is that my, that my obedience to the law is no longer the basis for my relationship with God. The, the law exists to show us our need for Jesus. But when I put my trust and my faith in Jesus Christ, his blood cleanses me of every sin, past, present, future. We're clothed in his righteousness. He clothes us in his own righteousness like a robe. I don't have to try and dress myself with the filthy rags of my works. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 61 verse 10. He said, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And, and our Father in heaven looks on us as though we had never sinned when we're in Jesus Christ. He, he, he looks upon us not on the basis of law, but on the basis of his son's righteousness. And he says, in my son, you have fulfilled all the requirements of the law. You're righteous before me. But Israel, instead of coming to faith in Jesus, instead of letting the law bring them to Jesus, they worship the law and they worship their works rather than their Savior, rather than Jesus. They rejected the fact that Jesus is the end of the law for those who will put their faith in him. And to drive home the ignorance of the Jewish people in regards to the law, Paul actually quotes from Leviticus 18, uh, Moses, the words of Moses, verse 5, it says this, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. So throughout Romans, we've seen a lot about the function of the law. And the law functions on this basis. If you obey the law, you live. That means perfect, complete obedience. If you obey the law, you live. And they said, well, we are obeying God's law. That's what the Jews said. But we are obeying God's law. And, and the question is, you are? Have you not measured yourself against the standard of God's righteousness, his son Jesus? Only Jesus perfectly fulfills the law. I think live by the law, I would far rather live by the spirit, wouldn't you? The greatest picture of that in the scripture is the, the picture of when the law came down with Moses and the tablets. What happened that day? 3,000 people died. New Testament records, the Spirit came down on Pentecost. What happened on that day? 3,000 were saved. Oh, the law brings death, but the Spirit brings life. The law breeds legalism in your life. The law breeds legalism in our church and in our community, and it, and it results in dead communities and dead churches and dead lives because no one can live by the legalism of the law. The prophet Zechariah said this, he said, not by might nor by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And, and the Holy Spirit in your life, the Holy Spirit in, in this church and in this community always leads to life and salvation because of the, it relies on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you're seeking a righteousness by the law, then I would say this to you. You're in a dangerous place. If you're depending on your works. If you're seeking righteousness by Jesus Christ, then, then you're in a safe place, man. That, that's a refuge, a strong tower, the name of Jesus. Look at what he says in verse six. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Interesting. He says, you know, some people are, are, are trying to ascend into heaven. They're trying to achieve their God consciousness, their Christ consciousness. They climb mountains. <laughs> they go into the woods. They practice silence to transcend human experience and reality. They smoke herbs or drink herbs or whatever it might be. They try to change their identity by changing their names, hoping to achieve maybe some sort of spiritual state, some transcendental state, all in an attempt to reach this God consciousness, this Christ consciousness. That is to bring Christ down. Others think, well, I'll dive in deep. I, I, I'll dive deep into religion, into theology, into philosophy. And if I can get deep enough, I can bring Jesus up in this sense. And you know, the crazy thing is, is that Paul's telling us this. There's no rigid requirements. You don't have to climb the mountains. You don't have to dig the depths. You've been given a right standing before God. True righteousness, he says. He's going to tell us in a second here. True righteousness is as close to you as your heart and your mouth. There's no mountain to climb. There's no depth to dig. You don't have to go to great heights or great depths. You can receive a righteousness that is by faith in confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. See, Jesus, he says, is not out of reach. He's accessible. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Isn't that great? Isn't that so simple? To believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth. I mean, this is no height to climb, no depth to dig, nothing to perform. Just trusting Jesus from your heart and making a confession from your lips. With your heart, Paul says, you believe that God raised them from the dead. That means you believe in the work of the cross. You believe in the finished work of the cross. And when you do from your heart and you confess Jesus is Lord, what Isaiah spoke of happens to you. The Lord comes and he clothes you in his righteousness. In the righteousness of Jesus. 
You know, I think when all it takes is a confession of mouth, that's all it takes, belief in my heart and confession in my mouth, and then that's it. My past is wiped out, my sinful past of breaking God's law. That's it. It's, it's wiped out and it's, it's non-existent because of, of Jesus. I think, wow, how foolish not to just step into that, to not take hold of that, to believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth. In fact, Paul says, he's going to say this in a moment. He's going to say this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. I, I love, Dar- Darcy told me something a, a couple years back it, that I just, it sticks with me. And he says, man, whenever I'm like with somebody and, you know, they're nearing the end and death is approaching, I just tell them, make sure the last thing on your lips is the name of Jesus. Just say Jesus. <laughs> Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And no one who calls on that name, I'll tell you what, no one who has ever called on that name has ever been turned away. So simple. So simple that it, it, that it can offend your flesh. Well, I thought I got to climb the mountain. I thought I got to promise to obey all the laws. But no, it's that simple to believe in your heart. You know, Spurgeon said this, He said, the faith that saves is not believing certain truths nor even believing that Jesus is a savior, but it is resting on him, depending on him, lying with all of your weight on Christ as the foundation of your hope. Believe that he can save you. Believe that he will save you. At any rate, leave the whole matter of your salvation with unquestioning confidence to him. Depend on him without fear and present yourself to him for eternal salvation. This is the faith that saves the soul. It's bad. Like, it can be as simple as, Jesus, I don't even know who you are. I don't know who you are yet, but I just cast my life upon you. I, I believe, Jesus, that you can save me. And maybe in the, process, in the process, I'll just discover who you are. I give you my life, Jesus. Look with me at verse 11. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call to him. You know, it's funny. You get around different people groups, right? It's like, we, we all love to brag about our ethnic background. It's okay, you know. We've, we, we've joke around sometimes and we say, if it's not Scottish, it's crap. You know, and we say things like that. You know, I've got a Greek buddy and he just thinks every, they're, they're, they're the source of everything, the Greek people. And, you know, th- we make different claims about our ethnicities and our background. And we, we love to give credit to that as if that gives us credence before God. But Jew or Gentile, we're saved simply... Uh, we're not saved simply by being born in the right family. We're, we're saved simply by being born of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's not obligated to us on, on the basis of our national or ethnic background. He is Lord of all, so uh, he's Lord for all, really. And anyone who calls on his name is brought into the kingdom of God and into his church. He says again in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this whole 
discussion that Paul here is having and that we're just kind of working through this morning emphasizes just whether you're Jew or Gentile, the, the difference between the life of the law and the life of the Spirit. Law versus uh, law righteousness versus the righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ the, and, and the life of faith that rests on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And what Paul is telling us is that in the present, he's saying this, Israel, for the most part, has missed the boat. Which emphasizes the need for the preaching of the gospel. That's what he's going to begin to say. He's going to say, this is why it is necessary that we preach the gospel. Because at this point, presently, they've missed the boat. You know, I was thinking about it, the tendency of, the tendency these days within the culture of the North American church is to, to look at the lost state of our culture, to look at the lost state of our nation, and, and we think, well, I've got to do some things to make Jesus more attractive. You know, to make the gospel more attractive. We've got to make the gospel more attractive, and we've got to make it more relevant. But, but attractive and relevant cannot be gained by compromise. Attractiveness and relevance cannot be gained by the watering down of the message of Jesus. That, that would be taking away the solution, the very solution that our world needs, that our country needs. And that's going to be Paul's point with Israel. He's going to say this, they need a church that preaches Jesus. Israel needs people in their lives that, that preach Jesus and him crucified they need the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, that's what our town needs from this church. They need a church that will not compromise on the gospel that says, Jesus is the solution. They, they need a, a church that knows what it is to stand in grace and to depend upon the righteousness that is by faith in the Lord Jesus. And that faithfully preaches and proclaims his gospel like Spurgeon said, resting on him and depending on him and lying with all of your weight on Christ as the foundation of your hope. Believing that he can save you, believing that he will save you, leaving the whole matter of salvation with unquestioning confidence upon Jesus, depending upon him without fear. That's the faith that saves the soul. And so as Paul goes on here, he's going to talk about just the, the failure of Israel to just see this rev, revelation. He's going to say, they've heard, but they haven't listened. They, they've understood, but they, they, they haven't committed themselves to this message. Look at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? What Paul is talking about is the necessity of God's people to preach the gospel. It's an amazing thing that God has entrusted to us, his church, his body, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. He's put it right into the hands of the church. Remember the first time your dad tossed you the keys? Be careful. Came, came with the warning. Those keys came with responsibility. And he threw you the keys and 
Jesus tossed the keys to Peter. He said this, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's a lot of responsibility on the church. Paul told Timothy, he said that the church is, is the pillar and foundation of truth. That's the responsibility that we, that we bear. And Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Those who, who bring good news and partner with the Holy Spirit for the salvation of men and women's souls. Beautiful feet. To me, that speaks of activity and motion and, and progress. You know, when you, when you think about feet, it's not like exactly the most beautiful part of the body, is it? Your feet. Your toes are kind of twisted and gnarly. And as you get older, the, the nails start to do weird things and all of these things. The, the feet aren't typically the most beautiful. They're the, they're the smelly and dirty parts of a body, typically. But the Lord says this, the feet of those who share the gospel are beautiful to me. The most dirty part of their lives, the most filthy part of their lives is a beautiful thing to me when they are about the work of my gospel. And in the Christian life, man, not sharing the gospel is just not an option for us, you guys. It's not an option. You know, I, I personally just tend to go inward and in self, being self-absorbed when I'm not sharing my faith in Jesus somewhere. And when you get your feet moving in the work of the gospel, what happens? Man, spiritual clouds lift, don't they? Paul said in, in his writing, uh, the letter for Philemon there, he said this, he said, I pray that you may be active in sharing the gospel so that you can understand every good thing we have in Christ. He's saying this, you cannot discover all of the riches that are yours in Christ Jesus unless you're active in sharing the gospel. So look what he says regarding Israel, verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For I, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. The, the prophets foretold the rejection of the gospel by Israel. The prophets foretold it. They, you know, that saving, and so Paul tells us, sa saving faith comes by the hearing of the word, uh, the hearing of the message through the word of God. And though, all, it, although Israel heard, they did not exercise faith in Jesus. And so because of Israel's rejection, is he, he's just gonna, we're going to just wrap up here on their present condition. He's going to tell us there are some results that are going on for Israel. And these are present and these are active today in our world. And so he says this in verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The first thing that tells us is this. Israel has heard and there is guilt before God. There is guilt before God for not responding to the message of the gospel. You know, it's interesting. We're, gonna, we're, go, we're getting ready. We're going on our trip to Israel here on uh, March 18th. We have a sold out tour, which I'm like super pumped about. And we're, we're going to go there. And did you know that last year 
every year that this is this is actually happening, I believe, and I, I haven't looked it back up to see how many years it's been, but there are record numbers of Christian tourists going to the land of Israel. Last year was a new record. And it's like God is sending his people and they go and they worship Jesus and they proclaim the name of Jesus and they declare Jesus. And the people of Israel, their, their, their hearts are spurned in jealousy towards what, what believers have in Jesus, you know? And the trips to Israel, you guys know this, our guide Avi got saved about four trips back. Then his wife got saved. And slowly God is doing a work amongst the people of Israel and, the, and the, they're beginning to awaken to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, have they not heard? Well, I would say this, if, if Israel did not respond with faith to the word of God, then how do we know that they heard? Maybe the issue is, is that they haven't heard. But Paul quotes Psalm 19 and he, and that, that speaks of God's revelation through creation and God's revelation through the word of God. And he says they have heard. They have heard. You know, the non-believing Gentile has, has the benefit of God's creation. Remember we saw that way back in Romans chapter 1. He said, you have creation. It declares to you the gospel. You can see these things about God's existence through creation. But the Jew has more than just creation. The Jew, he says, has both creation and the word of God. The Old Testament and the prophets. Israel has heard, he says, but they have not listened. They did not respond with a believing heart or a confessing mouth. And it's their, it's their own fault. God has provided them with plenty of opportunities and in their stubbornness, they are stumbling over the stumbling stone, the cornerstone Jesus. Another result of their rejection of Jesus is that the message, as we know, has gone out to the Gentiles. The Jews, have, they've understood, but they've, they've not taken in. They've not bought in. Verse 19, they haven't put their faith in Jesus. He says, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So he says this, did they not understand? When Israel rejected Jesus, God sent, when they rejected Jesus, God sent the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, which Moses prophesied. Isaiah prophesied what happened. And one of the reasons the Lord has sent the message of the gospel to the, the peoples of the world, the Gentiles, was to provoke the jealousy of Israel, he says. Which is an act of grace on the part of the Lord. To not say, it's an act of grace on the part of the Lord. He is seeking to woo Israel. And, and not only, you know, Gentiles getting saved, but seeing God's hand of blessing on, on Christians provokes the, the jealousy of the Jewish people, providing them with opportunities to turn, turn in faith to Jesus. The Lord has, what Paul's telling you is, he's like, the Lord has not closed the door on Israel. Look at verse 20, we'll wrap up here. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself 
to those who did not ask for me. So the rejection of Jesus by Israel was foretold by the prophets. And he goes on to tell us, God is still yearning for his people, yearning over them. Verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And what an amazing God we serve. When I read this, I think, man, God's amazing. He continually holds out his hands to people. And not just the Jewish people. He's holding out his hands, hands to you. His word says here that he holds out his hands to people that are disobedient, that they're contrary, that they're obstinate. I mean, we know the reality. It's like, how far did Jesus stretch out his hands? Well, about that far on a cross. He stretched them out on a cross and he stretches them out, not just to the Jew, he stretches them out to you. And the question for you and I is always this, it's like, Am I going to be disobedient? Am I going to be obstinate? Am I going to be contrary to the Lord or will we respond to his great love? There's no mountain to climb. There's no depth to dig. The word is as near your heart as it is your mouth. Jesus said, it's just as simple as Jesus, I, I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead and I confess with my mouth you are Lord. You know, I think about us, church. The Lord wants us. He wants to use us in the sharing of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel. I want to challenge you this morning. Get your feet moving. Get your feet moving for the sake of the gospel. God is so patient. And as we're going to see next week when we come to Romans chapter 11, he still has a plan for Israel that's future, that's going to unfold. He's got great things in store. Let's get our feet moving for the gospel.